Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here we are again with our series of mini episodes that we're bringing to you over the Christmas and New Year period. The Inside Influence team right now, well, we're taking a bit of a break. We're resetting, refreshing, re-inspiring ourselves and getting ready for what will be an epic lineup for 2021. But in the meantime, rather than radio silence, what we decided to do was go back through the back catalogue three years of Inside Influence. And I think actually in a few days, just after New Year, we will hit or drop our 100th episode. So we decided to go back and pick out our favorite guests, our favorite episodes, and then just to focus it down even further, pull out the one tool, idea or strategy from that conversation that we believe, that I believe, will make the biggest difference in 2021 in the year that we find ourselves heading into where all the rules have changed and we just, quite frankly, have to change right along with them. So today, what do we bring you today? Today, we bring you what has to be one of my favorite episodes from 2020. And there, there were a few. Today, I speak to James Clear. James is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Now, Atomic Habits, if you don't know of it, I can't believe that you don't, but if you don't know of it, it has to have either been at the top of the New York Times bestseller list or just moved kind of down a little bit, back up to the top, down a little bit, back up to the top for probably at least the last 12 months. It's an incredible book or an incredible insight into the power of our habits. James also has an amazing website and an excellent newsletter. If you're not signed up to it, please do. And the central question around all of it is how can we live better? And as he believes, and we all know, our habits are the foundation to how we answer that question. Today, you're going to hear him jumping straight into one topic, locking in habits and locking out distraction. Now, I believe this to be the number one trait of any successful leader, business owner or lifetime. And you're going to hear him diving into the four things that you need to establish any new habit. How every habit, now I love this, how every habit is a vote for the type of person that you want to become. I'm going quiet now because that one is just worth thinking about. And Warren Buffett's two-list strategy, one of my favorite tools of 2020. If you are in the middle of planning for 2021 and you want to get atomic, see what I did there, with your results, then trust me, this one is for you. So sit back, prepare for a new year and a new set of tools to take you to the next level with one of my favorite all-time guests, James Clear. Broadly speaking, uh, there are about four different things that you want to happen if you want to build a new habit. And you don't need all four to happen every time, but the more of these that you have working in your favor, the more likely it is that you're going to stick with with a new routine. So 
the first thing is you want your good habits to be obvious. You want to be available, visible, easy to see. You know, you want the healthy food to be on the counter. You want, uh, you know, for example, when I wanted to build a reading habit, I moved Audible to the home screen on my phone so that audiobooks would be the first thing I'd see. So same story there. Make it obvious. The second thing is you want it to be attractive. You want it to be like compelling or motivating or interesting to do. The third thing is you want it to be easy. The easier, more convenient, frictionless a habit is the more likely you are to stick to it. You know, if your habit is to read uh, one book a week, well, that's a lot harder than like reading one page a day. And so reading one page a day is a habit you're much more likely to stick to. And then, um, and then finally, you want it to be satisfying. You want it to be enjoyable or pleasurable in some way. You need like a, a positive emotion associated with the habit because otherwise your brain doesn't have that much reason to remember it or to repeat it in the future. You know, if, if behaviors are followed by a consequence or something that's just fairly neutral, then it's kind of like, well, why would I do that again in the future? So those four things are sort of the, the rough overview of what you're looking to do. You want to make it obvious, you want to make it attractive, you want to make it easy, and you want to make it satisfying. Um, and of course, I'm happy to dive into detail there and talk about, about each of those. But those principles are what you want to return to whenever you've got this big change in environment where it feels like, oh, I've, I've suddenly lost all the habits I had before. Let's, let's dive into making it satisfying for a second because you know some habits that you're looking to put in place for example getting up every morning going for a run or or i don't know 20 push-ups 100 sit-ups they're they're not immediately satisfying they become satisfying you know they create their own craving in a way once you've done them enough times you feel great you want to keep doing them but how do you put in place rewards when the inherent reward isn't in there at the beginning yeah, that's a great question. And actually, I should say, I think this is perhaps the best way to distinguish between what is a good habit and what is a bad habit. And that is that behaviors produce multiple outcomes across time. So broadly speaking, let's call it like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. And for bad habits, the immediate outcome of a bad habit is often kind of favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut or a cookie is it's sweet, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome if you keep doing that for you know six months or two years or whatever that's unfavorable. Same story for smoking a cigarette. Like the immediate outcome of smoking a cigarette might be you get to socialize with friends outside the office, or you curb your nicotine craving, or you reduce stress. Um, it's only the ultimate outcome that's unhealthy. But with good habits, it's often the reverse, which is the immediate outcome. Like the immediate outcome, as you mentioned, of like going to the gym or doing twenty push-ups isn't really a whole lot. Your body looks the same in the mirror at the end of the night. The scale hasn't really changed. If anything, maybe you're a little bit sore. Um, it's only if you keep working out for a year or two years or whatever that you get those benefits. And so this is sort of a hallmark of any compounding process, which is the greatest returns are delayed. You know, early on, you've got all this effort, but you're kind of at the bottom of the curve. You haven't hit that hockey stick growth yet. And you got to wait a long time for those outcomes to accumulate. So uh, the answer to your question, how do we make it satisfying? How do we deal with that mismatch between the immediate outcome and the ultimate outcome? And I think one way to do it is you want to visualize your progress. And this is where strategies like measurement or a habit tracker uh, are useful. So as an example, my parents like to swim. But again, if they, you know, every time they get out of the pool, their body looks exactly the same as when they got in. So there's no evidence that the workout was worth it. But my dad has this little pocket calendar where he, he's got like every day, it's got a little monthly calendar on it. And then uh, he puts an X on each day that they do a swimming workout. 
And it's a little thing. It's a short thing. It only takes a minute, but it visualizes the progress. It gives him a signal that, oh, I showed up and I did the right thing today. And um, being able to see that progress can be very motivating in the moment. And it also helps reinforce that you're being the kind of person that you want to be. And so uh, whether it's a habit tracker or, you know, for me, when I do my workouts, I have an actual exercise journal where I write down each set. Um, uh, if you have a book, like being able to see the bookmark get deeper in, or if you use like Kindle, it will show you at the bottom of the screen, like 42% read. Um, any type of progress tracker like that is, has sort of an inherently motivating quality to it where it helps you remind you of your progress and gets you to show up again and again. Um, you can also do a second thing, which is layering an actual like reward on top of the habit. And sometimes this is particularly useful for what I would call habits of avoidance, which are things that you're trying to not do. Like, uh, I'm trying to build a habit of not drinking alcohol. Uh, or, uh, we're trying to not go out to eat and, you know, uh, cook more meals in or things like that. I had one reader who, uh, they wanted to do that. They wanted to cook more meals at home. And it was just like kind of inherently not motivating. It's not satisfying, you know, like all, all that happens is we don't go anywhere. Uh, so we, we don't really have much benefit to it. So they created a little bank account and labeled it trip to Europe. And then every time they stayed at home to make dinner, instead of going out to eat, they would transfer $50 over to the account. And then at the end of the year, they put the money toward the trip. And the reason I like strategies like that is they, it gives them something that actually they could visualize in the moment. They, instead of seeing a habit tracker, they could see the bank account increase a little bit. So anything that you can do that can visualize your progress uh, can help m increase the satisfaction that you're feeling in the moment while you're waiting for those long-term rewards to accumulate. That actually just beautifully answered my next question, which was, I find, I find that there are useful rewards for me and, and not so useful rewards. And mine used to be a sense of achievement, you know, a sense of completion. I'm a great person to give a deadline to. I'm a great person to give a budget to. But as life got busier and, you know, the business grew and family emerges, I had to, re I had to work on replacing that sense of achievement with a sense of progress as my reward, which didn't immediately feel more satisfying. You know, it's when you want to get something done and you just see a little bit of progress, it doesn't feel as great. But as you mentioned, if you can track it in a way where you can actually feel yourself getting closer, then that's been really, really useful. This is a good part or a good time to discuss a concept that in the book, I refer to it as identity based habits. And the core idea is that Every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so whenever you're building a new habit, you're casting votes for that kind of identity. You're reinforcing that type of person. So, you know, um, in a sense, your habits are how you like embody a particular identity. So every morning that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Or anytime that you do one push-up, you embody the identity of someone who works out. Or if you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And, you know, like, no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for being that kind of person. And I, I think that's one of the most powerful things that small habits do. And it ties directly to what you're mentioning here, which is for a habit to be satisfying, for it to be enjoyable and you to find some sense of achievement or purpose or whatever it is that you're, you're trying to get out of it. It helps if you can tie it to your desired identity. So 
Um, you know, you mentioned a couple identities just a minute ago without probably without even realizing it. Things like I'm the type of person that's good to give a deadline to, right? Like that's that's a, an element of your identity that you take pride in. And so if you can tie the behaviors to that piece um, of your of your identity, then it becomes more likely that you're able to stick to it. And this becomes this is like a little hard for certain in certain situations. Uh, one example is like the military. So someone's been in the military for a few years, a big part of their identity might be like, I'm a soldier, but then they leave the military and it's like, well, I feel like I lost part of myself. And so what can be helpful is to reframe your identity so that you've got like some new entry points to it. Like rather than saying, I'm a soldier, you could say, I'm a good teammate or I'm the type of person who's reliable or I finish what I start. And those are ways of defining your identity that uh, can translate to a business context. So now you're out of the military and you're in a job, but hey, guess what? You can still be a great teammate and you can still finish what you start and so on. So um, I, I think one maybe question to ask yourself if you're listening to this is, what is my desired identity? Like, who, who am I trying to become? And then how can I uh, phrase that or reframe that in a way that my habits are, it's clear to me how my current habits are building toward my desired identity. And maybe a, another version of that question that people might find helpful is, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? Because if they can't, then something needs to change. You got some misalignment. And your desired future can be both the results that you want, but, but also it can be the type of person that you want to become. And uh, I think often it's more useful to focus on that identity that you're trying to build than uh, on the outcomes that, that you want. Because if you can become that kind of person, if you can foster your desired identity, then often the results kind of show up as a byproduct. Um, so anyway, all of that, I think, is related to this conversation of how the habits become satisfying well, ultimately, I think they become satisfying if they reinforce your desired identity, if they help you become the type of person you wish to become. I want to I want to just segue a second and go into force elimination. There was there's something that you have written about called Warren Buffett's two list rule, which, again, was one of those moments where I thought that is really easy to apply and seems obvious, but I've, I have not yet done it. Walk walk me through that. So. The story was told to me from a friend who was talking to uh, this guy that was Warren Buffett's private pilot. He was, you know, drove, flew his, uh, flew his jet. And uh, the, supposedly the story is that, you know, at some point he was talking to, to Buffett and saying like, oh, you should buy this new plane or whatever, you know, upgrade to this new jet. I'd love to fly it. And, um, you know, at some point they were going to upgrade in the next, I don't know, five years or something or 10 years. And he was like, look, if you're still flying for me in 10 years, then I kind of feel like I failed you as a boss. Like you should be growing, moving on to the next, you know, the next thing. And uh, he was like, I tried this exercise, which is I want you to write down the 25 things that you want to achieve, you know, over the, the rest of your career. And you, I should say, as a side note, I think you can do this for pretty much any timeline. 25 things you want to achieve this week, 25 things you want to get done this year, whatever. But anyway, the, this guy goes off and he writes down this list of 25 and he comes back and uh, supposedly Buffett says something like, uh, all right, now I want you to go ahead and uh, look at the list again and circle your top five. So the guy takes a minute and does that. And uh, he's like, okay, so those are your five priorities. Those are your five like, most important things. Tell me what your plan is for the other 20. And he was like, well, you know, uh, I'll focus on these five most of the time during the workday and whatnot, whatever. And then, uh, the other 20, 
you know, I can do on nights or weekends or when I got free time or, you know, get stuck on a, pro- a main project or whatever. And, uh, supposedly Buffett was saying something like, uh, well, no, no, no. I think that's all wrong. Like you gotta, your that other list items six through 25, that's your never do under any circumstance list. And what was interesting to me about it when I, I started thinking about it and the, the punchline I think is the most dangerous items on your to-do list are the ones that are good uses of time, but not great uses of time because you can always rationalize them. You know, like let's say you make a list and it's, you know, seven things that you need to get done this week. Well, actually like items four and five, like those are actually the worst ones because you can talk yourself into them where you're like, Oh yeah, actually this is kind of important to me, but actually all it's doing is preventing you from working on items one and two. And so this idea that like the most dangerous things in your to-do list are actually the good things, but not the great things, I think is something that, especially as your career progresses or as you get more responsibilities in life, your family grows, whatever it is. um, The problem with increasing obligations, with increasing responsibilities is that everything has a trade-off and you have less time than you had before. And so your ability to say no to things, your ability to eliminate and edit things needs to improve over time. You can almost view your life as like this big surface area and each additional day that you live, it increases the surface area for new opportunities to come your way. Some random person sends you an email about something cool or a new business idea comes in from a friend who mentioned something or whatever. But like each day is kind of bringing new things into the fold. The natural order of any to-do list is to grow. The natural order of any any life is to come across more opportunities as that surface area increases. And so if you don't have the ability to prune and edit, if you don't have the ability to, to trim away those opportunities, then you're going to lose the ability to focus on the things that matter the most. Um, another great analogy that I like for this is like a rose bush. So if you talk to any gardener, the way to really get a rose bush to flourish is you have to prune away some of the branches. You have to prune away some of the buds that could actually become a flower, but you prune away those to create the space so that the bush can, um, you know, the, a few blood buds can fully blossom, can really flourish because we sort of think about our productivity. We, we almost think about ourselves more like a tree, like I'll just grow taller and wider and add more branches. And like, I can get bigger and bigger and take on more and more. But actually I think our productivity is more like a rose bush, which is they don't grow uh, like up, up, up and out, out, out the way trees do. They're much more confined. They have like a, you know, maybe they're only a few feet tall. They're, they're kind of constrained. And the same thing is true for your productivity. You know, like you only have those 24 hours. And so you have to protect it by pruning away some of those, good potentially flowering buds so that you can let the few things fully blossom. And that I think is what that two list strategy or that kind of 25, five rule, uh, is trying to get at, you know, it's like, how can I focus on the things that really matter? And, um, unfortunately set aside some things that, you know, if I had infinite time, it would be fun to pursue, but that's not how life works. And so I have to, I have to, um, manage these trade-offs by remaining focused. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, 
Do you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch? Or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea? There is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you. But it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.